everybody you just stepped inside of psychotic bump school the place where education and entertainment meet at the intersection of funk and soul my name is dj rome and i want to welcome you to another exciting edition of psychotic bump school so ladies and gentlemen tonight oh wow we have an amazingly full show we've had a full week y'all oh between jacob blake and the loss and sudden announcement of the passing of chadwick bozeman Oh, wow. The, the black community is reeling, y'all. And uh, we got all this stuff happening across our politics with protests in Portland. And it, it, it's just been wild, y'all. So uh, to help me have all these conversations tonight, we have uh, three returning guests, plus a guest that's here for the very first time. So check this out. We're going to have our amazing Democratic panel. <laughs> oh, I don't know if they lean Democratic or not, but a political panel, I should say. Uh, Jeffrey Keller, y'all know Jeffrey Keller, the good brother, the co-host of the Pocho Hour Power on KPFK. He's joining us again, along with the amazing former educator, Lori Peacock. And we're going to be breaking down the latest in politics. That's Jeff and Lori returning this evening. I'm also proud to welcome back this good brother who has uh, graced the stages with the legendary Jay-Z, written and produced songs by Tweet. And uh, he's done some amazing stuff also with Raphael Sadiq. He's an amazing talent in his own right. The good brother Charlie B. Real is back this evening. Guitarist and bass player extraordinaire Charlie B. Real is back, y'all. And coming in for the very first time out of Flint, Michigan, the good brother Nicholas Mays. He's an author and uh, he's doing some amazing stuff. He's got a body of work out there that will absolutely amaze you. His latest project is a book called White Collar Woman, and I can't wait to hear all about it, y'all. I'm going to love introducing you to him. So that's our show. So you might want to call your friends and family to the radio or the computer because we are about to set it off. So this is KCWGTheTruth.com. My name is DJ Rome. Welcome to Psychotic Bump School. Stay tuned for more. We'll be right back with Jeff and Lori after this. This is Amber Ojeda, and you're listening to Psychotic Bump School with your host, DJ Rome, on KCWGTheTruth.com, the best internet radio station on the planet. It's the end of days, end of time, my oh my, in a blaze, you can't hide, why oh why? Said and done, I'ma spend this money. For it's all said and done, I'ma f these hoes. And I ain't pulling out shit, but the chopper though. I end the week like Domingo and Sabado. No petty shit when you can see it's bigger problems, bro. But I'ma I kill you, you know how it go. Nonchalant on most occasions, apocalypse no different. It take a lot to phase them, take even more to kill them. I watch, but I don't listen. A ox, I'm pulling wagons. My mama birthday, burger with the spirit of a dragon. On the last day of the calendar, I live like an assassin. I'ma pray before we go down with the planet. Drank some, smoked some. 
tongue, young, young. Before it's all done, tell when you love one. Drink some, yeah. smoke some. When I make it to the heavens, what's the code? Do I call the phone? Security at the gate, no plus one. Come all alone, all alone the race of life. I took a jog along along the coast. I'm trying to cope. I raise a toast and we consulted with the Most High. Told me watch my back, front, both sides. Hit a few baddies, you never smash for y'all both die. Let the smoke rise. Take the bodies to the crypts and when the poor people run out of food, they can eat the rich. Plead the poor fifth, drop one. Zombies on the block. See, I come with the shot like see, I come my pop. I got this block from my pops. It make the parking lot stop. We on the clock and time is hot. Chicken, have you forgotten that it's, it's the end of the day? This is KCWG, the truth.com. The name of this program is Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Rome. We're already into it, y'all. Uh, this is the panel of all panels. Uh, you know these two. Uh, they help me keep my sanity, ladies and gentlemen. There's a whole lot going on in this country, and another week has gone by. We have both uh, Democratic and Republican conventions in our rearview mirror. Um, I watched some of the Republican convention, so y'all didn't have to. But uh, we have our guests here, and we're going to break down some stuff that are happening in the nation right now. So, ladies and gentlemen, it is with honor, it is with esteemed privilege that I welcome back to Psychotic Bump School, our esteemed panelists, the good brother Jeffrey Keller and the amazing Lori Peacock. Lori, Jeff, are you there? Yes, sir. How you doing, Ron? Oh, man. I am doing all right, man. In times like this, you really need some good friends because there's, I can't recall things being so stirred up as they are right now, Lori and Jeff. We are being inundated by so many disappointing news stories. Jeffrey Keller, I saw that the uh, NBA great Cliff Robinson passed away. Yeah, man, he, that was wild. It's just, wow. uh, it's sad days, man. It is. Chadwick Boseman? I mean, I'm gonna have to do a full on um, tribute to that because of what he meant to the culture. That hurt, man. I mean, that that brought people even further down to their knees for a minute because I saw Issa Rae tweet when the announcement came down that Chadwick Boseman had passed away. She said, this broke me. That was her tweet. And I'm like, I get it. And I didn't realize how hard it was hitting until I was, you know, talk, I mean, just seeing the reaction of people. I mean, young men in tears, um, you know, they talk often about young men and how or the extent to which they're in touch with their emotions. But you remember when Kobe Bryant passed Lori and Jeff, uh, there was a lot of grown men crying over that. And um, this tragedy with Jacob Blake is no different. So like I said, th there's a whole lot we could discuss, but Jeff and Lori, right before we uh, came on the air, we were just talking about the ugliness that's uh, resonating in the country right now. Uh, whether we like it or not, we are under assault. And um, it's been tough out there. Lori, uh, what's been your experience out there in um, you know, the social media sphere? 
uh, as we come out of both conventions and head even closer, edging ever closer to the month of November for an election. Uh, catch me up a little bit, Lori, then I want to hear from Jeffrey Keller a little bit. Oh my goodness, it has been so terrible lately. I have been getting into altercations and, and arguments with people I don't even know all over Facebook. I've had to leave a couple of groups because of just the, the sheer number of people that express racist views that or you know, I would have never, well, I, I wouldn't have expected in some of these groups. Uh, one was a born and raised in Long Beach. You know, you would think people from Long Beach would be open-minded and cool, but no, there was a ton yeah. of awful, awful things said on that site. So, mm. so I've just been dealing with it and I was, I've just been getting really upset and I was talking to my 15-year-old my son and he said, mom, you just gotta get off Facebook, right? You just gotta get off Facebook, it's too much. He said, I've been on Facebook for I mean, 15 years, I think since he was born or right around the time he was born. Mm -hmm. And I have never, ever in all of these years experienced anything like this through different presidencies, through different, uh, different times, you know, uh, situations in our times, nothing like this, nothing to the point where people have literally just come out and spewed so much hate and racism and, and, and frustration and anger that's misdirected. Um, mm -hmm. So I, it's not, you know, Facebook is the problem. It's people are the problem. And I truly, truly believe that they are feeling much more empowered and emboldened to spew these, these, these thoughts and views because the president is so, hateful and divisive and cruel and mean. And that's all he has done for the last three years he's been in office to spew all of this. So people are like doing the same thing and mm. they, they feel entitled, they feel emboldened and, and it's, it's getting worse and worse. And um, I, I'm at a loss. And I, I, as far as being broken, you know, I was, um, was talking to someone the other day. I said, I don't know how much more I can take until I actually fall apart and break. And I don't know if I if that's going to happen, if I'm strong enough to withstand anything or if I have a tipping point that's coming because I have been pushed to my limits and hanging on by my fingernails to any semblance of sanity for mm. quite some time. Mm. But it'll be worse under a Biden-Harris administration, right? Right. Yes. That's going to make everything so much worse. It's going to destroy our country. You know, it's going to ruin America. And, you know, one of these guys, one of the things he said to me was, um, you know, I'm just a vile and horrible and terrible person. And, mm. you know, and all I'm doing is saying Black Lives Matter, please stop shooting us. Right. Like, that's all I'm saying. I'm not I'm not saying anything out of the ordinary here. And, mm -hmm. uh, and you know, there's two guys ganging up on me and he says, you know, we need to we need to call her out. Our society needs to call her out on mm. her disgustingness. And I was like, your society, right? Like, right. Oh, I was disgusting. I was vile. I was all of these horrible things when all I did was say he was a racist because he was. Mm. And um, yeah, yeah. And I was like, your society needs to call me out. Excuse me. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's bad and it's just going to get worse and we have to change it in November if we don't. I really don't think, I know I can't withstand four more years of this. I don't know. I mean, I think if, if, if Trump wins again, I, we're, we're going to have a, a, a civil war. I, I just don't see how we can, we can continue this way. Yeah, she's not alone in her thinking, uh, Jeffrey Keller. And just when she mentioned Long Beach, remember, Jeff, it was a uh, member of Barbecue Becky, the very first one who was making a prank. Oh, it wasn't a crank, but a 911 call because a black person wasn't doing what she, they, she told them to do about the barbecue grill. That was in Oakland, supposedly another uh, bastion of uh, Democratic 
uh, citizens. And it's happening everywhere, like Lori said, in places that people wouldn't normally associate with racism. Uh, lo and behold, it's everywhere. Jeffrey Keller, what's been your thoughts on all this, including, uh, you want to share a little bit of thoughts on uh, the passing of Chadwick Boseman? Yeah, um, first, you know, people need to understand that um, black people aren't anti-white or anti-racism. That's right. That's the first thing they need to understand. Mm. White folks start acting out when they feel like they're losing power to black people. Mm. And basically the dog whistle that Trump is saying, hey, you know what? I'm going to stop you from losing power to black people. So I'm going to stop them from coming into your neighborhoods. I'm going to stop them from destroying your cities. And I'm going to do that by, you know, he's going to declare martial law at some point. Yeah. That's why there won't be a civil war. Because he'll, that's mm. what he wants, is to be able to do martial law mm. and bring in the military and have them control the cities and the states. And believe me, that will be in the democratic uh, ran states. Right. And so that, that's, that's what we have to be scared of, okay. is martial law. I've lived in L.A. when they had martial law, mm-hmm. going through checkpoints, going through tanks down at the uh, Crenshaw Mall, having the military marching up and down your street. It's, it's not fun at all. No. And that's why these white folks are acting out, because they're afraid they're losing power. And basically Trump is saying, take your power back. And that's why they feel so bold and out there. They don't, they, don't, they don't feel like they're fighting against black people. They feel like they're taking their power back. And right. that's what's scarier. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as Chadwick, I mean, I don't know any other uh, actor has played so many black icons. Right. You know, he, he's played, you know, it seemed like, God, every time he did something, as an icon. I mean, Black Panther wasn't an icon, but he became an icon. Right. <laughs> yeah. And in such a short amount of time, yes. I mean, a very, he had a very, very brief career. It's only, I mean, sky's the limit as to what he could have done and accomplished had he not passed so, so soon. Mm-hmm. Very much. Oh, uh, that one hurt because again, we had all the things that the two of you were talking about. We had just started dealing with the Jacob Blake situation in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and then, um, we lose our King T'Challa, you know, and all the symbolism that all of that body of work represents that you're talking about, Lori, I mean, it came to mean something to the black community. Mm-hmm. And as diverse of a strand, Jeff, there was a moment though, cause you're an actor, bro. And I was just tripping up, man, he's playing him and him and him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How can he go from James Brown to Thurgood Marshall? Thurgood Marshall was a light-skinned cat, wasn't he? Right. And then he went and played um, Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson, yeah. I can kind of get that. And then, of course, uh, T'Challa, I'm like, this dude felt like he could play any historical figure. I mean, he was he just felt empowered like that. I mean, I'm just curious. You both have dabbled in acting. So I'm just wondering how inspirational that part is, just feeling like, yo, I can do this because I'm black and I, I just got it like that. He said I could play any historical figure. Jeffrey Keller, what are your thoughts on that? Well, the hardest thing to me, which I don't understand, which is he's he's just amazing he just really into the craft is how do you work as an actor playing such roles while you're going through therapy chemo chemotherapy operations Mm -hmm. doing all that because you're on you're on the set 18 hours a day 20 hours a day yeah you know what i thought about yeah i know that that is amazing to me you know who i thought you're right you know who i thought about when that story broke remember bernie mac i didn't know he was sick before 
uh, they announced, maybe the inside world of comedy knew what was happening behind the scene and how he had to use an oxygen tank in between takes to breathe. But I was kind of surprised along those lines, Jeff. Did you, I mean, did you see the death coming when it was Bernie Mac's time? No, I didn't. Uh, you know, one thing I have to give credit to is the people around him um, for not leaking it. Yeah, exactly. Because that's that's the hardest thing is to have people uh, not leak it. Mm -hmm. And for them to be able to do that uh, and be that dedicated to them is yeah. a rare quality nowadays. This is KCWG, the truth.com's program's called Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Rome. Uh, I'm chatting it up with uh, two good friends, uh, the amazing Lori Peacock and my good brother, Mr. Jeffrey Keller. So y'all, um, on another note, you know, just continuing on the lines of the, uh, the, the disarray in the country, uh, we recently um, experienced two windows of the American experience. How is it possible that one can be shot unarmed Right. and be considered such a threat and another in another panel um if you're white and bearing arms you're considered uh, a, a patriot uh Lori, yeah. let's speak to that a little bit what are your thoughts uh, it's disgusting it's horrible it's repulsive and anybody this is this was the argument this is where i was getting in that and that argument on facebook was about this specific topic and the fact that you know black people are just being shot and murdered and killed by police for with no justification over and over and over again and yet this disgusting white person with his ak strapped to him can right. go and, and and murder people murder them shoot them and then just go home and and be fine and then be be taken into custody peacefully with no incident but somebody who with with you know who knows what their crime is or maybe not even committed a crime mm. is going to be manhandled, thrown to the ground, murdered, shot, whatever, over and over. This is, keeps happening. And, and, you know, for people to say, oh, my gosh, just get over it now. Let's just stop the rallying. Let's just stop it. We can't stop it because people are still being unjustly, black, sorry, black people are still being unjustly murdered by police. And we had the protest movement a few months ago. Another black man is killed. So now we're going to have to continue because it's not stopping. It's not changing. No. And... The, anybody who anybody who thinks that the BLM movement is a bad thing is a racist, period. Mm -hmm. There's no way around it because there is nothing bad about saying, please stop murdering black people. There is mm -hmm. nothing. We're not asking for special treatment. Nope. We're not asking for anything except let us live. Just stop killing us. And for anybody to have a problem with that, there are totally messed up and they're racist mm. and it makes me really angry and i'm really angry right now about all of this and i you know that these guys were calling me out and saying you know i have these issues I'm like yeah i'm mad i'm mad. mad i'm angry i have hate i have hate in my heart for mm -hmm. people like that mm -hmm. and i have never felt that way before in my life uh, you just said a word right there it, this is very upsetting jeffrey keller what are your thoughts on that I believe that the people that incited for him to go out and shoot people should be held accountable. Mm. Uh, your Trumps, your Fox News, mm. they brainwashed this kid to go out there to protect his neighborhood from these black people, from that these rioters. 
That wasn't his neighborhood. <laughs> well, no, but what I'm saying is he's afraid they're going to get to his neighborhood. Oh, okay. And that's what Trump is saying. The suburbs, they're mm. going to go out to the suburbs. They're going to get you. Mm. That's a dog whistle. That's what he's doing. Yep. And so these guys hear that and say, well, we got to stop them before they get to my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So we're going to go out there and go where they're at and stop them. Mm. This kid goes out there, 17, hearing this rhetoric. You know, it's, it's, it's like, you know, they, when, how ISIS recruits kids and brainwashes them. We're doing the same damn thing to these young kids. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. yeah. And they believe it, and they go out there, and they shoot people. What about And, the, of course, they get treated differently, because if it had been a black dude walking down the street with a with a Dead. Gun, he would have been dead. He, he, he would have got shot. By uh, multiple bullets. So, <laughs> you know, we all know that the justice in America is not the same. But we also got to acknowledge the people that are inciting and igniting the fire for these guys to do those things. Mm. Well, what about the notion that if you don't resist cops, they probably <laughs> won't rough you up. If you just comply, you won't have to worry about getting shot. Uh, these are the naysayers, of course. Um, what uh, rhetorical retort can we have toward people who share such views such as that? What is the threat to the police officer when the man is running away? Mm. Where, where is the threat? Mm. Where is the danger to the police officer's life when the man is running away? Is it because he's going to run and he's going to get a gun and he's going to shoot them up and they're going to be in danger? Probably not, right? He's trying to get away because he doesn't want to die. He's resisting arrest because he's afraid he's going to die. You know and, what they say? That he may have had a knife. That he, he had a knife. Oh, yeah. Oh, he was going. He had a knife. But, he told him he had a knife. You, he was going for the knife, right? This is the argument that these jerks had on me with Facebook. And I'm like, okay, so what's he going to do with that knife? How is he going to hurt them? Even if he got to the knife, they could, right. they could still destroy him without shooting him seven times. So, um, you know, it, 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 it's... It's a problem, and the problem is that these police officers have racism in their hearts, and they have they have negative views of black people or people of color. Just from you know, some of it might be preconceived, some of it might be from their lives on the job. You know, mm -hmm. maybe they've seen things that have have skewed them to think a certain way. Regardless, it's not okay to have these kind of preconceived notions that are negative that are going to lead to murder. Right. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, but he didn't die. But he right. Didn't die. He didn't huh. die, right? That. So, so you know, he's still alive, right? So, really, it, it, where's the harm? That was the other argument that these guys had. He's alive. He's alive. Okay, he's alive. But how many others have are not alive because of this? Yeah, alive and handcuffed to the bed. They find yeah, and probably paralyzed and, 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 paralyzed and damaged for the rest of his life. And right. it, oh, but you know, he, he he was wanted. He had a warrant for sexual assault. Doesn't that bother you? Yeah, yeah. sure, it bothers me. Put them. Mm -hmm. Put him in jail. Put him in jail, give him a trial, put him in prison, do what needs to be done. Does that mean he deserves to be shot up, murdered, hurt, injured forever, right there on the spot? No. In front of his kids. That's what they say, Jeffrey Keller. It's like there are no perfect victims. But how many times, like the, the neighbor who um, shot his uh, neighbor's son, a little five-year-old, of course, nobody's celebrating that. That's not cool. But the, the way they talk, it's like how quickly have people said that, okay, maybe the, the five-year-old threatened the black man. I mean, they immediately uh, assign a, a presumption of innocence to certain people while mm -hmm. in the complete opposite to, to someone else. And we know why. And so 
I'm just wondering how this is going to play out in the campaign trail. There was a criticism in the Biden uh, convention or the Democratic convention that they didn't probably or perhaps say enough about the, uh, the civil unrest that was happening in the country. Although I have seen Kamala speaking out on it a little bit more lately. And uh, Jeff, you're right. They're trying to dog whistle to uh, Trump supporters that they're coming to your community. And one of the reasons he's having so many black men you know, trotting out to endorse him on the convention floor or the stage of the convention is because he's trying to imply this, oh, we're not so bad because we, we have good blacks too, or we have blacks too. Jeff, how do you think this is playing out? Um, is this a missed opportunity that Biden-Harris need to shore up as they're campaigning going into November? Well, first of all, I mean, you, you can't be two people at once. You can't be the guy that created the crime bill and the person that executed it, but you're soft on crime. Mm -hmm. okay. that, that makes no sense. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and as far as, you know, the early guys talking about the victim, I mean, they treat us like we're like, you know, they always want to deal with the victim and not the people that killed them. That's right. They are or the people that shot them. Mm -hmm. they, let's look back at the police at their background and see what their record is. Right. You know, but they don't want to do that. They always want to blame the victim. Mm -hmm. you know, there was the, I, I never knew that the police were supposed to be judged during executioner. Exactly. I, thought, well, I thought they were supposed to be the arresting officer. Exactly. And the background, what's that got to do with the here and now? Matt Getz is a it congressman. Has, yeah, it has nothing to do. Nothing. Matt Gates or Getz is a congressman uh, that's an avid Trump supporter right now. He's got a DUI on his record. How many lives did he endanger by going through that? And it's... It, it reeks of hypocrisy when uh, they always want to uh, halo uh, certain suspects or perpetrators while demonizing and criminalizing others. It's a playbook that is uh, very old and widely used among that uh, side of the electorate. And we'll have to see how it plays out in November. Uh, I needed this chat, y'all. Um, it, it gets rough. You know what I'm saying? And um, I just wanted to, um, Lori, I, I appreciate your passion because you're really speaking to something that I think is uh, affecting all of us. I think, um, I'll just speak for myself, Jeff, just as a man, I, I'm angrier these days. I'm madder than, than I've ever been and having to find ways to channel that, that passion into so, to some productive pursuits so that I don't go crazy. And I don't like it like this i really don't however i do feel like they they've declared war on the democrats they've declared war mm -hmm. on citizens of color and we're under assault we're under attack and it, it's hard uh over the weekend jeff i don't know if you noticed uh pete carroll of the seattle seahawks he canceled a uh, practice uh with, with the whole team because you know he he understands the moment that we're having right now. And he said in his speech that, you know, black players and black people, they get it. They understand how bad it's been. It's white people that don't. That's from Pete Carroll, Jeffrey Keller. Right, but see, people don't, don't understand. And this is sports people have always stood up. Yes, they have. Racism. Mm -hmm. I mean, you had back in 62 with the Boston Celtics, uh, black players, Bill Russell and them, uh, got on a plane and flew out because they couldn't eat at a restaurant at the hotel they were staying on. 
uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and a couple other college basketball players did not play in the 68 Olympics to protest the racism that was going on in America. This is nothing new. You know, you're angry, you're upset. Let me tell you right now, Roman, I'm going to be truthful with you. Uh-huh. I've been angry since I was eight years old. Okay. Ever since I read Saw and Ice, Eldridge Cleaver, and saw how America has been treating black people since I was a kid. This is nothing new. Okay, let's let's be real about the situation. Black people getting killed by police officers, black people getting lynched by white people, black people getting shot by white people and nothing happened to them. And we dealing with an unjust criminal justice system. This has been going on for decades. This is nothing new, people. And if you want to know why black people and black men and black women are so angry, learn the history of America from the Constitution to today. Mm. And you will understand that like Doc Rivers says, we've loved America, but America has never loved us back. That's right. That's why we're upset. I don't care Democrat. I don't care Republican. They right. both have dirt and blood on their hands. Mm. So let's be real about that. Yes. They, the Democrats can't be clean either. That's right. Both of them have dirt on their hands. That's right. We're just going to say, 70-year-old man, who's less racist? That's where we're at, and it's a damn shame. This is Crystal Kareen, and you're listening to Psychotic Bump School with your host, DJ Rome, on KCWGTheTruth.com, the best internet radio station on the planet. This is Nicholas Mays, author of White Collar Woman, and you're listening to DJ Rome on Psychotic Bump School, the place where education and entertainment meet at the intersection of funk and soul.
Okay, we are back. KCWG, the truth.com. This program is called Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Rome, and I am very excited to welcome this next guest. You know, I always love my East Coast brothers and sisters, and this good brother hails out of Flint, Michigan. And you know how uh, historic Flint has been in the last few years. They've been going through a lot out there, y'all. And so uh, I'm always open and uh, highly receptive to hearing stories from that region. And this good, talented brother, this brother has been writing books, y'all. This, this brother's a literary beast. Be handling that business with his scribs, you know what I'm saying? So uh, he has a new project out, a new book, I should say. Let's just call it what it is. A beautiful new book. It's called White Collar Woman. And it's part of a long series that this brother has been uh, continuing uh, to tell this ever-evolving story. And the latest is called White Collar Woman. So ladies and gentlemen, let's hear all about it. Please welcome for the very first time to Psychotic Bump School, the good brother, Arthur. Mr. Nicholas Mays. Mr. Mays, are you there? Yes, sir. How you doing? Oh, man, we cool in the gang, man. How's it going out there on the East Coast where you are? Oh, going great. Going great. Still enjoying this warm weather before it change on us. Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. What is it looking like? <laughs> you guys got the, the leaves turning colors out there and whatnot? Yeah, yeah. It, it just started. Just starting to turn and fall off the tree. So I know fall is starting to hit now. Fall is starting to hit. Okay, well, welcome <laughs> aboard, man. It's an honor to have Thanks. you there, man. So White Collar Woman, I want to get to that in just a second. And you you kind of alluded to it being a part of a series, so I definitely want to get to that. How'd you get your start in uh, writing, good brother? Not too many brothers I know have written a series uh, such as yours. So uh, how did this all come to be for you? Uh, actually, first started writing around the age of 12 or 13, actually. It was at a young age and you know at the time it was just something to do you know i always had a strong imagination ideas and i guess at that age i was like let me try putting it on paper you know just sitting down coming up with little ideas and i actually at that time it was like a horror story mm. and uh you know i tell people like around that time that's what we was into because this is like early 90s you know we had the jason freddy krueger we had all that going on so oh yeah i, I guess i wanted to put horror on paper so that's that's really when I got started writing around that age. Oh man, Jason Freddy Krueger, that was quite an <laughs> era, right? Yep, definitely. Maybe. Um, so horror. So I've had some horror filmmakers on here before, and the horror genre is kind of a wide open field for for black filmmakers and artists because that field has been dominated by people other than us. But we have quite a contribution to that genre. So. How many of your works subsequent to that initial interest in uh, sort of spotlighting and focusing on horror, how many of your projects have uh, singularly, um, you know, kind of lingered in that genre? <laughs> to be honest, and this is what's shocking to a lot of people, you know, I did that at that age, but when I actually got into writing, this was like in my mid-20s, I started actually uh, writing books. Mm. I'd never wrote horror, you know, and I, and I mm. told people, I think one of the reasons I didn't actually get into writing horror stories is because when I did the first one around the age of 12 or 13, I showed it to my parents. And, you know, my, my father, he gave me the support, said, you know, good job. When I showed it to my mother, she, was, she wasn't happy at all. You know, she felt her kids shouldn't be writing horror stories, you know, about people getting killed and this and that. So when, when, she, when she had that response, I said, that might have been my little off switch to like, no, I'm not going to write this no more. So I, oh, when I did, when I started writing books, I didn't even do a horror story, actually. Mm, okay. So you pivoted to something because mama wasn't having that. She wasn't playing. Right. So uh, 
And that's understandable, man. I mean, I come from a very uh, conservative household myself. And if we just put on records that said funk, funk used to be a bad word. Oh, right. <laughs> and so we, I mean, you know, if my grandma was still alive, I still wouldn't say in front of her right now. So <laughs> I can only imagine what that must have been like, good brother. So you pivoted to other styles of writing. So how would you say, you know, given growing up in, have you been in Flint your whole life? Yes, definitely. Yeah. So, wow. So that region has been um, sort of cycling through the news in the last few years. Um, in what ways have the environmental realities in Flint impacted you as an artist, good brother? Um, I, I think the, the biggest impact is just seeing how people in general responded to the challenges we're facing. You know, not, not just myself and family, but, you know, people just in the neighborhood, just in passing by definitely friends people you know you meet at, at different locations and that definitely gives me inspiration of what to put in my books that are right so mm. you know we face all types of challenges you know the, the biggest one has been the the water challenge you know sure. the, the lead in the water yeah. but at the same time the financial issues this actually led me to write a finance book you know outside of my book series so it's mm. definitely been you know something that's inspired me to write oh absolutely well, we've had this pandemic. Uh, in what ways has that impacted the uh, the pacing and uh, the release schedule that you had prior to the onset of coronavirus? Uh, I, I look at, and you know, it's not saying in a in a positive. It's not positive. You know, there's no way Corona is positive because it's changed everything we do in life. But I, I, I believe, you know, having a positive mindset in general. You know, what we deal with in Flint you got to have a positive mindset to keep going. You know, when you're dealing with the water issue, financial issues, you mm. still got to remain positive to keep going. So I think we were already in the position of facing challenges. So when this coronavirus hit us, most people in Flint was able to bounce back, you know, and say, well, this is what we got to adjust to. We got to start wearing face masks, social distance. We, you know, things shut down. We can't do this, do that but we still know how to fight back. That's one, one thing Flint is known for is always fighting back. Mm. So when, when the virus hit, I came up with another plan. I was like, this is my opportunity to start writing more. You know, mm. I, I, I can't leave the house as much as I used to, or, you know, it's limited on going here, going there. Let's, let's sit at home and start putting some things on paper. My ideas, let's, mm. let's put it on paper and start writing again. So mm. I found a way to make it a, a way to fight back and do more in my career. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a virus, a pandemic. Um, yeah. Any environmental, um, you know, because I want you, if you could, can you dispel some myths about Flint, Michigan and its residents there? And, you know, aside from the water issue, which of course is a pervasive threat, and yeah. I'm really glad that they have reached a settlement finally. I hope that the, the citizens of Flint can benefit from that. But yeah. uh, what myths could you dispel for? We're going to talk about white collar woman in a second, but what myths can you dispel about Flint, its residents, the black people there, the people of color? What does the media constantly get wrong about you guys? Uh, it's always uh, painted in a darker, you know, darker picture. There's not a lot of light shined on, on Flint in a positive way. So that, and you know, they always make it seem like, especially when another thing we got hit with was the whole GM situation, you know, cause mm. Flint was well known for GM, you know, General Motors. This is where yeah. we're like the birth of General Motors. 
Yeah. And so, you know, we had all these different plants here, things going great. We got the money going through the city because you got a lot of people employed with GM. And, you know, all of a sudden it just closed down. You know, we lost the major plants and everything. So now people viewing Flint as, well, it's just a dark area. You know, nothing's going on. The money can't be made. But in reality, that's totally not true. You know, we're still finding ways to grow. We're realizing that we don't have to just depend on one organization to be a, a flowing city, to have money coming through and to grow. Mm. So we're finding other ways to become a strong city. And I think that's one of the myths is that once we lost so many different things within the city that, oh, they're not going to grow anymore. This mm. is a place you don't want to live. And in reality, Flint is still growing. Like right now, the downtown area of Flint, they're building, you know, new hotels, new apartments lost you know the the college area has always been strong in flint like the u of m flint my community college these are some of the greatest places to go to school because we got some of the strongest minds coming out of there you know mm-hmm. you you know gm is a pure example you know the reason gm got started because some of the greatest minds were birthed in flint so mm-hmm. I, I think flint is still definitely a strong place to build a family and grow from there Oh, that's what's up. You represent it very well, good brother. Thank uh, you. White collar woman, man. Um, talk to us about your book, man. And I, I know a lot has gone into it. Uh, first, uh, break it down any way you want to, from the inception of the series all the way up to White Collar Woman. How do we get to this story that you have going right now called White Collar Woman? How do we get here? Uh, actually, this came about, like I said, I always had the strong imagination, you know, since I was a kid. But at the time when I was a kid, I didn't view it as, hey, this can be a career. So I didn't really get back to writing to my mid-20s. And at that time, I was working a security job. And it's it's interesting because I was working security at a GM plant. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things about security, we all know, you know, you can be doing doing different jobs in security. You can Mm -hmm. be the person that's patrolling in a vehicle. You can be patrolling the building. And sometimes you're just sitting at a booth, you know, watching people come in and out, make sure everything is safe. Mm-hmm. And I believe it was one of those times when I was just sitting at a booth. And, you know, while I'm watching people coming in and out, I, my, you know, creative juices started to flow. I'm thinking, you know, coming up with ideas. And I thought to myself, let me try to put this on paper. You know, let me see if I can get really into writing, come up with a story. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, I did about maybe two chapters, two to three chapters. And after I finished them, I said, well, let me share with my family and friends, see what they think about it. Mm. And the, the responses was amazing. You know, everybody was motivating me, pushing me to say, you know, make complete this book. I want to finish the story. Mm. And that was the, the key push to get me to writing. And the, one of the reasons I chose White Collar Woman, because I wanted the story to be centered around a woman. You know, I, I, I thought to myself, I said, you know, Women, I, I believe, is the majority readers. And I said, I want a story for them. And, yeah. and I want it to be presented in a positive light. You know, I don't want it to be like a street literature type book. I wanted a book where a woman is shown as a successful person. Although she's dealing with drama and other challenges in her life, at the same time, she's a positive woman working in the corporate world. And that's why I came up with the title, White Collar Woman. While I was doing White Collar Woman 6, I started another book and that, that was, it was kind of interesting because it was, it was just flowing out of me and I, I knew I had to put it on paper and it's, it's a book dealing with self-empowerment. And I believe that's 
sparked because of what we're dealing with right now, you know, with the whole pandemic and people not being able to get out there and do what they want or follow their dreams because everything had to be put on hold. And it just was motivating me to to do this book dealing with self-empowerment. And I believe this is is time for this book. Mm. So what distinguishes a white collar woman from every every other type of woman? Uh, What compelled you to put the focus on that particular type of woman? Uh, I believe, you know, because, you know, we all view, we, whenever you say white collar, that, that's always been used for like the corporate world. You know, when you're an employee working in the corporate world, you can be a accountant, a CEO, or, you know, a, a person that's in marketing, and they consider you on the white collar level. That's what they always labeled it. So I, that's where I came up with the title, White Collar Woman. And then, like I said, I didn't want to go into the street lit, literature where, the person is on the streets, you know, they could be a hustler uh, selling drugs or all, all types of, you know, negative things where they're struggling to get by. And for me, I wanted the lead character to be a, a, a young, black, successful woman that's working in the corporate world. Mm-hmm. You know, she's working in marketing. She's growing in her career. And at the same time, she's dealing with everyday challenges. So a person that's reading it, a woman that's reading it, even a man. You know, because we all have women in our lives, because that's one of the things that inspired me because I, I was able to pull from the different women that's in my life, my mother, my sisters, my aunties, cousins, so mm-hmm. I could have it as real as I can get it. And where a person can pick up the book and read it and be like, man, I, I understand why she's going through this. So yeah. that was the biggest, you know, inspiration to do that one. Oh, absolutely. This is KCWG, the truth.com's program is called Psychotic Bum School. I'm DJ Rome. We're speaking to the good brother, Nicholas Mays. He has a new project out there right now called White Collar Woman, a continuation of his longstanding series. So black women in the corporate world. Well, uh, I'm assuming there is a single protagonist in this story. Uh, Is that fair to assume that's the case? Yes. Yes, definitely. And and (laughs) on this one, because, you know, uh, this is book number six. So Mm. throughout the past five books, there's always been various people you know for as far as the protagonist it could be you know a man that she's dealing with in a relationship or it could be a relative but in book number six i wanted to bring it back and i've made it sure that the protagonist was another woman you know and, and actually it's like a head-to-head situation because she's successful as well mm-hmm. so I, I made sure to have so so the reader can get the good and the bad of both sides so okay. definitely Definitely. All right. All right. Well, um, I can't wait to uh, dive into it, man. But the images that are conjured up when I think of white collar woman, I think of uh, a sister handling her business. I think about <laughs> a sister who has a lot of responsibilities on her plate and res- is far responsible for far more than just uh, clocking in on time at work and leaving on time and keeping things rolling at work. She's probably uh, taking care of her family as well. Uh, she might even be raising children. I'm not sure about this particular protagonist in your story. However, um, I do have a question. Uh, what kind of issues or conflicts emerged through the course of White Collar Woman in terms of her relationships with the men in her life? Uh, how have you handled or uh, tackled that angle in White Collar Woman? Um, well, in book number six, you know, it's a continuation. I think I, I really got deep into that part of it. Well, you, you'll see it in the very first book, but in the second book, I even subtitled it A Man's Appetite. 
So mm. I went deep into that area as far as dealing with men and the challenges that women have to face, especially in the corporate world. Mm. But uh, fast forward into book number six, it's, it's still there because you still got some of the main male characters from the entire series. They mm. reappear in this book. Mm-hmm. And definitely, you know, you, you're going to see like, you know, you got some that's dealing with multiple relationships. You know, they're not purposely trying to, you know, juggle multiple women, but mm-hmm. they they got people that's interfering with their main relationship. And there's, there's a balance of a battle of trying to remain committed to one. And you got others that's trying to come into the picture. So mm-hmm. and, I, and at the same time, I always try to keep it as realistic as possible. I, I'm not in no way, you know, that batting down men and making them seem like the bad people in the story but Mm -hmm. i definitely have to show what men have to face as well in the corporate world you know because me myself i'm a man myself so i definitely can speak from that angle and show you know the challenges that a man has to face as well yeah for sure and when those challenges emerge in white collar woman do you sense that the the typical portrayal of that uh is sort of in constant uh a conflict maybe uh there are uh, pay disparities um i think about sisters who are working and like i said like wearing multiple hats and really taking care of business whereas their black male counterparts may um not be as welcome in the white collar world you know what i'm saying they might be as more of a threat and she is too because she's black intelligent don't take no stuff handles her business (laughs) but at the same time she's subjected to a lot of microaggressions and sleight of hand stuff that she's putting up with on the daily not to omit the fact that people are hitting on her all day brothers white men all types of stuff coming at a white collar woman i would imagine so uh, without giving away the details, because, you know, it's kind of a teaser that, uh, you know, if people haven't read it, because I'm curious about these dynamics all the time. But the way it plays out in White Collar Woman, um, what larger message are you conveying about those types of dynamics? Is this something that um, in our community has been viewed as an insurmountable challenge between Black men and women? Or... Does your book tackle it in ways in which uh, solutions can arise where we can work together to, um, you know, bridge our differences if they exist? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Always. It's always a solution at the end. You know, you you definitely see how, okay, you know, it's still come out on the good, you know, and and at the same time, you still you find some that really they they fall at the end because i want to keep it realistic you know i Mm -hmm. i don't want to show it like it's always going to be the the good guy wins you know that's that's how we want it we always want the story to be like the love story but at the same time sometimes it in reality sometimes it falls that way like you said what we have to face in the real world you want to see that in the story as well you don't want it to be so sugar-coated where it's like it's always one way it's always a one-way street in reality you want to see well okay this person kind of fell short you know they didn't just fall completely flat on their face but mm-hmm. they f- had some challenges that they couldn't get over and but at the same time here's some other people you know another male character another black male that did great he came out on top and i actually did that in the mm-hmm. very first book you mm-hmm. know because in the in the very beginning you like oh you know this is it's going to be horrible for him. You know, this is a, a young black male. He's trying to do right. He's trying to raise his family. He's got this going on with him and his wife, his kids. 
He's mm. got these challenges. Then at the end, you're like, oh, okay, okay. It still turned out for good. He just had to get through these little challenges. I, I can understand it. You know, I know some people in my life. I've seen some people on the job that had to go through these same things. And you'll see that at the same time for a young, black, successful woman. Like, oh, no, she's got too much going on. She's not going to make it. But at the end, you're like, oh, great. Okay, she she found a way to get through these challenges. Mm, fantastic. Lots of cal- uh, character development. The arc of your characters really evolve over time from the first book to this one, right? Yes, definitely, definitely. And, that, and that's what I loved about number six, because I made sure to bring in some main characters that people enjoy from the previous book. So when you get there, you're like, oh, no, you know, here, here's like one key person is uh, Angie Waters. Mm-hmm. And she, she came aboard in book number two. Mm-hmm. And from the very beginning, you know, you was like, oh, no, what's, what's going on with Angie? She has such a strong personality in the books going through all the series that when, when she reappears in number six, you know, a lot of people is going to enjoy seeing her face, you know, well, not seeing her face, but hearing about where she's at now in book number six. Wow. Well, I can't wait, man. Uh, one last thing. Um, it's hard not to um, merge uh, the, the fiction world with what's happening right now and politics, you know, right now and everything that we do. There's so many things uh, pressing down on black people right now. Uh, but just in terms of, you know, just trying to stay focused on white collar woman, um, are you is are you making any statement at all about uh, income uh, disparity or closing the the wealth disparity gap in the black community and other communities? Because for every ten dollars, okay, let me see if I can get this right. Every ten dollars <laughs> that the white family has, uh, the black community supposedly has one dollar, if that. And uh, wow. some, some of it is because that uh, that that receptivity I spoke about earlier. We're just not welcome sometimes. Uh, right. In that environment, whereas black women are seen to be is a little bit more. Uh, well, look at Joe Biden's running mate right now. I mean, we can yeah. talk about politics, but just as one example, um, the the wealth disparity gap uh, due to potentially, at least in part, due to the absence of black men in as affluent positions. I mean, you did mention that one brother who kind of, you know, surprised people with his character development and he ended up turning out okay, right? Um, How how common is that? Um, And, you know, because I asked you earlier to dispel some myths about Flint. Um, Can you characterize that phenomenon a little bit? Uh, Income inequality and the sort of the aspirational deficits between black men and women in the work world where black men are trying to come up, but sometimes uh, sisters will get there first. Uh, what are your mm. thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I believe this, it is a, it is a game that's, you know, that we have to play through when it, when it comes into the corporate world and even just life in general. Now, when it comes to the series, I, I don't really tap into that too much. I, I'm trying to kept it entertainment. I do have some, like I say, some real life experiences in the book, in the series as a whole. But I think when it came to that area, because that, that's always been in the back of my mind, always something I think about 24-7, you know, because like you say, we see it on a regular basis. And I believe that's, that's what led me to write my finance book, you know, because mm. one of the things I did when I finished my first book, of, and which was White Collar Woman, I had it just boiling inside me about finances and the 
many challenges we face. And I, I, the very next book I came out with was a nonfiction. And that was Exit, How to Leave Debt Forever. Because I know that's one of the many challenges, especially as black people, that we have to face. Is You know, we're always we're easily placed in debt. You know, we went the challenges in the work world, you know, one of the options we have is debt. You know, we accumulate credit, being able to purchase this, that, and the other. So I said, well, we got to find a way to get out of that, how we can better ourselves where we're no longer dependent on, you know, how we're going to grow in life on based on someone else's back and we can just do it ourselves. So mm-hmm. that's what led me to exit how to leave debt forever. And mm-hmm. I think that's the the book that, really focuses on that area and helps with it. Oh, wow. Well, you you have a well-rounded apparatus on this uh, literary career of yours. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, I'm definitely going to be following your work. Thank you for joining us. Uh, this is the good brother Nicholas Mays out of Flint, Michigan. His book is called White Collar Woman. Good brother, what's the best way for people to keep in touch with you and to purchase this wonderful book? Oh, they definitely can come to my website, which is whitecollarwoman.com. That's it's the same name as the book, and it has all my information, the entire series. Also, I have um, a blog on there as well, and it's kind of unique because the website itself is a fiction series. But mm-hmm. on my website, it's like motivational blogs. You know, I, I kind of changed it up because I wanted the person that visits the website to have something that motivates them, especially in times like this, you know, dealing with the pandemic mm-hmm. and the many financial challenges that's going on. So you can go to the blog and get motivated at the same time, view some of the books that I have. And if you, you know, if you're used to the Amazon or Barnes and Noble, you can also visit those sites as well to purchase either digital or print. And you also find my finance book, which is Exit, How to Leave Debt Forever. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, I don't have to say this at all to you, but uh, after the brother blows up with this book, you know he's got a career in radio or broadcast TV. Y'all hear that voice? Good brother. <laughs> you are full of immeasurable talents. And uh, oh, I really appreciate you. you coming on and uh, dropping some, some jewels on us, man. Laying it down here on Psychotic Bump School. Will you come back and join us again in the future, good brother? Oh, definitely. I would love to.
are back. This is KCWG, the truth.com. The name of this program is Psychotic Bum School. My name is DJ Rome. And uh, I'm going to attribute this next segment to being at the right place at the right time. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't sit by my phone 24 seven, but I happen to be sitting by my phone and my phone lit up uh, with an accidental contact from this next guest. He's been here before. And uh, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. As some athletes say, you know, I don't know if I'm good, but I got lucky on this one. Uh, the Good Brother is an amazing talent. Uh, he's a singer, songwriter, guitarist, musician, multi-instrumentalist. He's toured the world and played with some of the biggest stars in R&B, soul, funk, and hip-hop, including Tweet, Raphael Sadiq, and of course, Jay-Z. Uh, he's been here before, like I said, and I'm so excited that we accidentally bumped into each other over the internet. So ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, please welcome back. To Psychotic Bump School, the good brother, Mr. Charlie Burrell. Charlie, What's are you up? there? What's, What's up, y'all? How y'all doing? Oh, we cool in the gang, good brother. Like I said, I feel like I hit the jackpot, man. <laughs> yeah, man. What you been up to, man? Pandemic, coronavirus. How you been keeping up? Man, my little girl. I have a baby girl. Oh, yeah. She's 20 months. She's been keeping me on my toes. Um, yeah. Uh, I've been digging in the crates, listening to... Marvin, Sly, Isley Brothers. I've been oh, uh, inspired. Come on, come on. Come on. Uh, All set right. up my computer and my desk, and I just, you know, been able to kind of stay, stay creative in my space. Man, imagine if if it were somehow genetically possible for all those artists you just mentioned to have a baby. He, ladies and gentlemen, Charlie just said Sly Stone, Marvin Gaye. You said Isley Brothers, so that's Ronnie mm -hmm. Isley and and. Uh, I'm assuming, uh, given that you're a master guitar player, were you listening to some Ernie Isley solos? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Oh, man. What's one of your favorite Ernie Isley solos? Uh, Atlantis and uh, Who's yes. That Lady. Yes. Yes. What is it about Atlantis? Because I, I saw a guitar lesson on um, YouTube many years ago, and... The, the brother, he, he was a sharp cat. I don't know if he's a, a working musician, but the, the brother knew his stuff. And he was saying that the, the Voyage to Atlantis introduction, I think, is very much akin to a Jimi Hendrix song. Uh, what is it about that particular uh, vibe that Ernie, the way he opened that song with that, that just bending that long note coming into it, uh, what is it about that particular track that got you? Uh, the effects that he used. Um... Mm. It's just different. Like, you know, a lot of guys use distortion, but he had like a, like a tremolo, chorusy, flanger mm. type of vibe with distortion. With with the distortion, wasn't too much. It was just like a different sound. It was, yeah. it was, uh, it's unique. A lot yeah. of people can't get that sound today. Why not? Is it uh, if they bought the same equipment that Ernie used? Uh, oh, yeah. But I don't think people know what, you know, like so I, I met a guy who got really close. Uh, um, shout out to Rob Bacon. He was. Yes, sir. He, he had a shot, uh, setup and um, it sounded just like it. So you just mm. got to find the right pedals. Those who, you know, who know, know. And if you don't know. Oh, OK. Ask. OK. You got to ask. Wow. And um, you were taking some cues from Marvin and Sly. Um, can you give us an idea, a picture of the kind of grooves you were uh, vibing to? I've been, uh, for Marvin, I just, um, everything he does is the vibe. <laughs> I mean, uh, I've been, uh, I've been yeah. listening to like uh, 
bop music, like music that you can do to bop to, dance mm-hmm. and music. And mm-hmm. uh, with the Sly, um, I've been looking at a lot of YouTube, watching them on uh, Soul Train, watching them in his concerts, just listening to his backstory, mm-hmm. his creativity, and just because he, he was so free, I felt like I felt uh, yeah. A lot of things he said, I felt the same. Like I, I didn't particularly like my voice. I'm still learning to get used to my voice. He didn't like his voice either. Uh, okay. He's just different. Sometimes you gotta get used to, you know, who you are. You know. Mm. I never knew he had. I never knew that about Sly Stone because this is the cat that wrote. Thank you for letting me be myself again. I thought he was the master teacher of mastering self-awareness. So that that's very fascinating. He had to get comfortable with the sound of his own voice. Yeah. Huh? Wow. Yeah, yeah. I, and I think that song that you're talking about, that's when, uh, you know, his, his band was very diverse. So yes. I think it became like, okay, this is not about me. Uh, they, you know, just like we're dealing with right now, black people dying. And they were getting called all type of names because it was a uh, mixed people in the band. So, yeah, you know, they started writing freedom songs. Oh yeah, oh yeah, love Sly Stone, man. Love Marvin. Yeah. Um, of course, Marvin, a uh, friend of yours, man. Pocket Honore, he helped us pay tribute to Wawa Watson. So, yeah, Pocket. Yeah, yeah. man. I be, I be thinking about uh, the stuff Wawa did with Marvin, man. Just yeah. Guitar work you did with him, man. So those those are some some gems, man. Those those are the yeah. features right there. Yes. So, yes. Uh, wow, that's fantastic, man. So uh, the last time you were here, you had uh, just put out a new project, and you've been steadily on the grind ever since. Like you said, in uh, exploring the adventures of parenthood with your your, your beautiful baby girl. And mm-hmm. um, would you say how has your creativity changed? I mean. Has there been any impact whatsoever on you as a writer, as a musician, as a result of uh, coming a father? Oh, yeah. Um, because children, you know, when you're in the house, they're listening to their stuff. They're listening to Sesame Street or whatever the cartoon it is. And most of the stuff, when you, when you look at children's stuff, is really simple. And I remember Bob Marley said one, one, a long time ago, like, if you make a song that's simple enough for a child to understand that you got something. Um, mm. And uh kind of helped me kind of, I, I was just, you know, forced to be in that vibe of just happiness and just light music, fun music, simple mel- simple melodies. It brought me back to to my childhood, like she looks so much like me that it, it put the fire back that I had when I first started. Oh, wow, that's beautiful. Yeah. And she's not your first, right? Didn't you have your uh, son on another project? Yep, I had my son on another project. Um, yeah. This is my yeah. first little girl. So oh. I had a boy and now I got a little girl. Ooh, is, is the parenting different? Is the- Yeah, because <laughs> my, my, my wife got sick and then, um, Oh, man. Girls are different than boys. So, like, from day one, um, I didn't know if my wife was going to make it. She was in the hospital with preeclampsia. And it was just me and the babies just, you know, like, we were Mm. were just, like, together. And we had this, we have this special bond. And um, Mm. she loves music. Um, This is like my little girl. So, she, she, I love both of my kids. They're both dear to my heart. Yes, sir. So, um, 
you know, even my son inspired me to make music. And I guess it's just another chapter in my life, having a little girl and it's, whatever yeah. it's doing to me is changing me. I know that. How about that? I know uh, Nas, the legendary rapper out of uh, Queens, New York, um, he wrote a song called Daughters on uh, one of his mm -hmm. albums. And mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? So there, there is something special about uh, a black man who has a black daughter. Mm -hmm. and, and he's emotionally invested in that relationship, uh, yeah. as he should. Uh, I, I mean, I have daughters now because I married into it, Charlie. I mean, mm. you're you're right from the inception, and you you two have formed a a, a precious bond. I mean, it, it would have happened anyway, but you know, given that very difficult um, moment that uh, you had with your wife, I'm glad she's okay, brother. Yeah, thank uh, you. Given that, uh, I, I'm guessing that you you all have gotten to become really really close. Yeah. Um, wow, that's beautiful, man. So. You've been on the grind, man. So uh, this pandemic has been no joke. Um, we've been dealing with a whole lot of things in addition to that. And uh, you've been writing uh, right along the way and uh, doing sessions. So can you talk, how busy have you been? I mean, I know a lot of us have been working from home more than uh, ever now. And so um, what's your sessions been like uh, recently in terms of how much you can get done at home versus having to travel and uh, link up with somebody at the studio? Uh, what's changed majorly for you since the last time you were here as far as recording and making music? Um, having to make music by myself and uh, not being able to go anywhere. Um, you know, I, and what else? Yeah, just that. And, you know, acoustics, to, I had to change the way I mix. I had to change the way. Mm. Um it was just a, it was just a different process, but I got used to it. I started um embracing the um the room that I was in. I was like, okay, well, I had friends just like, man, we're quarantining, like keep the background noise in there. Like, ah, like okay. you know what I mean? Like okay. people know what it is, so wow. start changing uh, you know that and then I start getting a recording and um it's been kinda tight because I don't have the um I guess the acoustics to yell as loud as I want to and oh yeah play you know do certain I don't have the live drums mm -hmm. I don't have because I've changed my way of recording I do everything live now so mm -hmm. all of that stuff all of those elements were missing but it turned out to be you know pretty good because when you take a couple of lemons you can make lemonade no matter oh, what yes, it is you know Absolutely. When you say you do it live now, what, what exactly does that look like? Because I'm guessing you're sitting at the console and playing versus you say you do it live. Uh, what's the difference? Okay. So before, when I first did my first interview, I did kind of like a pre-production, like having a, you ever seen, most people use beat machines and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they'll like record an A-bar loop. I'm like, oh, I like that loop. And then they get the layer and like, oh man, I want a piano on it. Let's add a piano. Let's mm -hmm. do this. But the way I record now is kind of like how they record it in the Motown days. James Brown, even Marvin Gaye. I get a group of cat cats and we just hit record and we play live, like freestyle it. Like either learn it, but we just playing it live. There's no stopping. Mm -hmm. They're just playing it through as a band. So yeah, you're doing that all virtually, or uh... no? I haven't been doing that during the quarantine. So that's the that's the difference. So I had to stop the way I recorded before the pandemic hmm. to um, going back to using beat machines and stuff. 
Oh, okay. Now you're a multi-instrumentalist and I know guitar, is it fair to say guitar is your main instrument? Yeah. Okay. Um, what have you, have you, have you picked up other instruments more? Like you said, with, with the absence of live drums, you're using a drum machine more. Has that picked yeah. up exponentially in addition to any other instrumentations you're having to rely on yourself more on now for to produce? Uh, not really. Not really. I just, um, my instrument, bass and guitar is the main one, but I've been, um, the only thing I've been doing a whole lot is uh, engineering from this computer. Like, oh yeah. You know, so that's been the, the skills I've been usually like, spend my most time just figuring out how to make it sound better than I can make it sound. Yeah. Like just make, trying to make it sound good as possible through uh, audio engineering. Absolutely. This is KCWG, the truth.com's program's called Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Rome. Uh, we're chatting with guitarist, bassist, uh, the good brother, Charlie Be Real. Uh, we're just catching up, man. One thing that I hate to admit, <laughs> Charlie, is that I hate learning new things after I've gotten comfortable with something. Oh, yeah. Switching from computer to computer, I was comfortable with this program called Audacity. And mm -hmm. this new Mac, it, I mean, I guess there's a way to get it, but it, it's not compatible with Audacity. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I hate when you know that happens. Man, man, it messed me up, man. And so I had to yeah. learn GarageBand. I'm still learning it, but, you know, I'm starting to get it. I remember, uh, you know, DJ Premier, the, the great yeah. producer of the East Coast, yeah. he was playing out of D&D Studios when uh, they went digital because they, they got that raw, rugged, uh, grimy sound because the, those D&D Studios were using tubes, I guess. And, oh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. when he was going digital, he said, yo, I'm just going to woodshed it. I'm going to just stay in the studio all day until I learn this joint. And mm. it was painstaking, but he said, I'm not leaving until I master this. And he did. Mm. Man, if you have that kind of time, like you got a baby. So. Yeah, I just learned a new program during this quarantine. I did everything in this new program called Luna. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. what do you like about that compared to uh, some of the other stuff you were using? Uh, I like Universal Audio. So Universal Audio finally made a, like, a, a unit where you can record in there. The reason why I like it so much because it's it it has a sound uh it has all the knee plugins it has like this vintage sound that I love mm -hmm. with no latency so it gets it's just all about the way it sounds like I, my ear I could just hear like i it's certain things that irk me and it and that sounds warm and it sounds um analog it doesn't sound digital mm -hmm. I don't really mm -hmm. like the digital sound so absolutely. Uh, you said a very important word. That's what made me think about when you said you're now uh, doing it live now. Uh, you, this device you just, or this program you're just mentioning right now, you, you mentioned latency. Can you break down yeah. what latency is and why that's so important in recording? Um, a lot of people try to, you know, they plug in their stuff into Logic or whatever their GarageBand or whatever it is. And um, people, they'll say, or even Pro Tools, people are like, man, I, it's late. Can you got fix the buffer size? You got to change the buffer size to make it not late. And then like, if you try to add effects, it can kind of make the signal late. But with Luna and uh, UAD, when you, when you plug in those plugins, you can use a plugin uh, before you even go into the IO that you're in, like uh, your DAW, whether it's Logic, Pro Tools. So they have this unit that you could uh, pre-mix before you go in. 
So you could be using like a really good plugin and have the mix that you like before you even record. So I build my mix with, with these amps and these plugins before I even record. And it's zero latency. So wow. like a lot of units can't do that. That's right. Without it kind of being late. Oh, right on. Right on. Well, uh, good job, man. I mean, it's no small thing to learning new stuff. I hate it, man. I'm trying not to. <laughs> I'm trying not to because it, it just, you know, the, the one constant is change, right? So yeah. I can't be too stuck and handcuffed to one mode of doing things. I got to be flexible and pliable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm trying, man. I'm trying. Yeah. But uh, you, you got this new project out, man. And in fact, uh, the reason why you hip dialed me the other day was because uh, you got some exciting things. I don't know how much of it you can talk about publicly, but uh, mm -hmm. what can you tell us about what you've been working on lately? You seem pretty excited about it. Uh, putting together live shows digitally. So I'm, I'm looking to get with a lot of cats that's pushing the soul, like me, like J-Mo, uh, Jerris Mosey, Corey Henry. Mm. I reached out to Pocket Queen. Um, getting ready to put a show together. Or even, uh, we're just trying to, we're, we're figuring out, we're talking right now with uh, mm -hmm. my boy Rome from the stage. <laughs> I thought I was calling that Rome, man. <laughs> called you. So, uh, right. Yeah. And then also, uh, just looking to, uh, do shows. Like I'm planning to, and it's not even about shows. Um, it's about me in, in, in the band and getting our voices heard best way we can. Like, mm -hmm. you know, like just put out good vibe to the world. That's what I feel like God has me here for. And um, just trying to, you know, create different ways. Every day I'm, I'm looking for different ways to be creative, to share this music. Mm. And you, uh, last time you were here, you were sharing some stuff that you had um, recorded and written and produced with Tweet and mm -hmm. how you were bouncing between bass and guitar. Are you writing more on either instrument now or is it pretty... It's uh, about the same. About the same? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, what, what's your new music all about? Um, you said you got some new tracks. Um, how they popping? How they hitting? Well, Walk the Streets of Love, which was released June 29th, is doing very well. It just hit radio. It's on uh, KCRW. Uh, it's going to be playing on there for three months. Um, oh, man. Okay. Spotify has got over 500K uh, streams. It's, it's, it's taking, it's doing pretty good. It's, um, performing it it just came out uh i got a couple of um things on the table where it might be in a movie it's mm. just a good it's just one single but it's it's about love and it's about going back outside and spreading love and you know we're going through a lot of stuff like uh floyd george floyd and you know um, yeah you know everybody you know brianna taylor everybody that's been all the black people that's been abused and killed like like we always have been. Yep. So um, I just been trying to keep it light just to, you know, like we go, we're all persecuted, but this is the time to love one another and embrace one mm -hmm. another so we can get through this. This mm -hmm. is not a time to be still worrying about who did what to you back in 89 and who did, the, who said what, like, you know, I'm just trying to push love, you know? That's right, that's right. Uh, that's amazing, man. Um, when you, um, can you tell us about the instrumentation on the song? Uh, I know you're doing a lot of, uh, things solo and by yourself now, but how did you ap approach the track rhythmically, 
modally? I, I don't know why I always like to ask that question, but I don't know if I'm too much talking about key signature. Uh, I hear your co your your background singer there. She she Yeah, you hear my baby. <laughs> hey baby. <laughs> yeah. Baby be real in the house. Baby be real in the house, y'all. That's what's up. How did you approach the track uh musically and um how how what 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 was the specific uh, you know, I don't want to give you Oh, uh, I had a uh I had a nice little drum loop. It was like a shuffle. Like my mother-in-law liked to bop. Uh, you know, you remember that dance? You heard of that dance before? <laughs> you said it before. I was trying. I was trying to envision it. Who does the bop? Okay, it's, I guess it's like stepping. The people in Chicago step, but okay. And Philly, I, I don't know. They maybe call it the bop. But my mother-in-law's from Philly, and she would always do the bop. She'd be like, "No, this dance is called the bop, and it's usually do it with a partner." Mm. And she, she's a dancer. She used to dance for James Brown. She loved to dance. She always be like, "That's a bop." Even the signature sounds like. A bop is like how sweet it is to be. Oh yeah. The shuffle, sha da da, sha da da. That's a bop. So yeah. I had this loop that was a bop. So um, and then uh, a lot of the kid music like Sesame Street, those are bop songs, and it's like my daughter mm -hmm. loves it. So I've just been in a happy bop mood, and that 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 rhythm does naturally give you like a, a sense of happiness. So hmm. that's how it started, and then I added the guitar, added the bass. And I added the lyrics, and then the rest was history. It just all came together. Wow. Uh, your voice on the front end, back end, backing vocals, the whole nine? Everything. I did everything because we, you know, we're quarantining. Except one line. My boy, I was able to get over my boy. He heard it, and he he just started singing to it. And I was like, man, record that. And he recorded uh, the dot, 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 dot. He, like, did some dots on it. But other mm -hmm. than that, I had to do everything myself. Wow, it's picked up steam already, huh? Doing pretty yeah. well on Spotify yeah. and uh, other major major radio stations. That's fantastic, good brother. You yeah. found a way to get your work through, man. Well, um, yep, yep, yep. exciting times, good brother. Uh, what's some, you, you mentioned this project with, uh, I think you called her Pocket Queen, and a gentleman named Corey, Corey Henry. That's yeah. Okay. Uh, how soon can we expect that? Uh, any more additional tracks to support this current one out right now? Uh, what's in the immediate works for you? Uh, I'm going to I'm going to follow Walk the Streets of Love with maybe an EP or album. Um, I have a new album that came out that probably slipped past your radar. It's called Eleven Eleven Eleven. I'm still promoting that last album. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And then um, beautiful. Far as the Corey Henry and Pocket Queen stuff, I don't know. I don't know when that's, okay. that's just all talk right now. I know me and Corey, me, Corey, J-Mo, Jerry's mm -hmm. Mosey, and a guy named Dre Harris, we have a lot of music and we're, we're meeting about how we're going to put this out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So those are, you know, um, I, I've worked a little bit with Rock Nation. Um, okay. They used something I did years ago. They just put it out. Vic Mensa put this song out called No More Tears. And I produced a tweet single that she just put out yesterday, just came out yesterday. And um Okay, how can we find that track? What's the name of that track by Twitter? Uh it's called uh Never Felt This Way Before. It's on all platforms. Oh man, you say the best for last. Well, you you the best, but tell us how you uh because Tweet and you are longtime collaborators. So um mm -hmm. what's the story behind that particular track. What's the name of it again? Never felt this way before. Okay, how did that one come together? Uh, we worked on this before pandemic, and um, this year I've been kind of encouraging her to put out music. So mm -hmm. 
her label and her got together, had a meeting, and they, they finally went to drop something from the new project, which is finished. Like, uh, I did that about three or four, about three years ago. Finished it. It's just now coming out. Never, never felt this way before. I never, never felt this way before. Since I, since I found you, never felt this way before. I never, never felt this way. Never felt this way. The ever present. Uh, the omnipresent, I should say, Charlie Burrill, guitarist, bassist, singer, songwriter, multi musician, all around cat, singer, lead, background vocalist who's becoming increasingly comfortable with his own voice like Sly Stone. This brother does it all, and baby Burrill is in the house as well. Good brother. <laughs> A lucky mistake on my part. Uh, it's always good to hear from you, good brother. What's the best way oh, for man. people to keep in touch with you and follow your work, my man? Uh, you can follow me on Charlie Be Real, B-E-R-E-A-L, on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, Charlie Be Real. And um, you can click my bio on my Instagram, and you can get all my music. You could type in Charlie Be Real if you want to get my sound packs. If you make music, I sell sound packs. So if you type in uh, Charlie Be Real Instagram, it's really easy to find everything on there. So just remember that it's Be Real, B-E-R-E-A-L, Be Real. Well, that's our show, y'all. Psychotic Bump School is the place where education and entertainment meet at the intersection of funk and soul. My name is DJ Rome, and you know we're here every Monday evening from 5.30 p.m. to 7 p.m. Pacific time. Check back with us. We shall return next week. Also want to thank our very special guests, Jeffrey Keller, Lori Peacock, Nicholas Mays, and the good brother Charlie B. Real. Also want to remind you to be sure that you download the KCWGTheTruth.com app right inside of your app store. Make sure you download us there. We're also available on Roku as well as Apple TV. All of these platforms, you can check out Psychotic Bum School, so make sure you do so right now. But start with downloading the app on kcwgthetruth.com. Also want to send a shout out to Frank Starks, who is the Iron Man behind the board. And we're out of here, y'all. Take care. <laughs>